You're listening to Race Capital on WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio. This week on Race Capital, we're discussing organizing through the divide. I talked to Dr. Peter Radcliffe, labor organizer, Bill Fletcher, both about how the institutions of Richmond have worked strategically to divide the movement and how the Lee Monument represents the literal fight in the court, but also the current symbolic fight to defend black lives on this land. We go back to why this gigantic monument was proposed in 1890. Our public memory can verbalize that it was to solidify the white race. But do you know the true context of the time? Have you learned about the Working Men's Reform Party that built the old city hall on an eight-hour day and met the demands of the multiracial labor organizing movement? Join us this week to learn and listen about this third political party that organized through the National Knights of Labor but was stopped in their tracks with the contract to build the statue of Robert E. Lee. Thanks for tuning in to Raise Capital. This week on Raise Capital Reframe, joining me, I have co-host Kalia Harris. Hey, Kalia. Hey, hey, hey. All right, let's dive straight into local news. A lot of endorsements coming out for these local elections, and a big endorser that made a lot of news was Governor Ralph Northam. And Ralph Northam's first endorsement that came out was for 8th District Race Amy Wentz. Remember, she is running against the longtime city council person, Reva Trammell, also known as very conservative. And then up next, Ralph Northam continued to make endorsements, came out with endorsements to 6th District Council person and 7th District Council person, Ellen Robertson and Cynthia Newbill. Right. So because Amy is running against somebody that is hyper-conservative, hey, we might like somebody with a big name like Ralph Northam coming in. Now, when we're looking more at the progressive versus moderate races, like in the 6th and the 7th, somebody like Ralph Northam's voice coming in might not be what you want. Cynthia Newbill and Ellen Robertson are longtime centrist Richmond politicians. They were pro-Navy Hill. They were negative on anything for Black lives this summer. And they have people running against them that are very progressive and endorsed by multiple organizations that hold progressive values. And those candidates are in the sixth, Alan Charles Chipman, and in the seventh, Joseph Rogers. Kalia, any thoughts about these endorsements? Yeah, I guess I'm just not surprised that the institution itself felt the need to have a say in our local elections. That shows how big of a deal local elections actually are. And that when it comes time for it, the money is what matters, whether it's Dominion money or anti-corporate money and how people are accepting it. And so it means that we really have to look at these campaign donations and see what is it that they're promising with these right. en- with these endorsements and with the donations that they're giving. Right. And the eighth district race is the leading and the most expensive race right now with the over 125 grand raise between both candidates. And there are some pretty clear choices. And Richard to make it. I hope we don't do what the nation did, but you know, 
Guess we're going to have to see. Speaking of our past and how we've been treating Black lives, the East End Cemetery is back in the news. The overseer and owner in Richmond, which is a nonprofit that recently bought the cemetery, continues to resist the Friends of East End. We continue to lift the work of the Friends of East End, of Brian Palmer, Aaron Holloway, his wife, and the volunteers that have been putting sweat equity for years. If you have not been following this, please understand that Enrichment kind of is like a big plantation owner at this point. Yikes. Enrichment has come in, bought out all the land where our ancestors lie, and had people there tending to it for years. Some good news, it sounds like, I hope, that more Black history is coming to Virginia schools. Mm. Kalia, they are now including several new points to Virginia education, including Juneteenth in the list of holidays and observances, adding John Mercer Langston and L. Douglas Wilder to the list of notable Virginians for first graders. Adding specifically on the leadership of Martin Luther King Jr. and ending racial segregation to the second grade framework. Okay. Uh, (laughs) We're going to continue on. Adding a specific reference to Virginia's Old Point Comfort as the point of arrival of the first Africans brought to British North America. All right. 400th year. Mm -hmm. Including Christmas Atticus and James Armistead Lafayette in the list of individuals playing important roles in the American Revolution. Acknowledging the resistance of most white Southerners to Reconstruction. Look at that. So we have now racist white folks in there. Acknowledging. Sorry. (laughs) It is progress. And in 2020, we are acknowledging the resistance of most white Southerners to reconstruction. Oh, buddy. We are also teaching high schoolers about the adoption of the Virginia slave codes by the Virginia House of Burgesses and about the history of lynching in the Virginia and the United States. And and just a reminder to all the listeners that the Virginia slave codes that were enacted in the 1902 Virginia Constitution wiped out 90% of the Black men votership in one strike of a pen. Mm, mm, mm. And finally, in local news, the special session on policing has come to an end. Kalia, what are your thoughts? I'm so glad it's over. It has been a show that has gone on for far too long. And I'm glad the curtains are finally closing. They're closing and the hoods are off. Quote, in measures police groups did support largely sailed through, including an end of session gifts from lawmakers to frontline officers, a $500 one-time bonus for some officers, which Democratic leaders framed as an olive branch to police agencies and an explicit rejection of protest calls to, quote, defund the police, end quote. So that's how we ended our special session on addressing police violence is by giving law enforcement a happy bonus of $500 each during a pandemic. So you're telling me that they couldn't come together and give $500 to each resident of Virginia. No, they had to feign their loyalty to the police. And they came in on the coattails of marches and protests. And they're going to walk away patting themselves on the back as if they've done something. Not to mention that the law enforcement agencies are feeling great about this past special session. Why they needed this special olive branch is beyond me. It was quite clear in the messages of the bills of what passed, what our Democratic majority General Assembly thinks about Black lives having to defend themselves against law enforcement. Yeah, and people weren't even brave enough to vote against the payment. It was all of them except for Delegate Lee Carter. I checked. There were zero abstentions. And it was just Lee Carter. 
I need answers from my Black legislators. To me, Kalia, my very first thought, I saw a tweet out there that said Lee Carter was the only no vote to this budget that included the bonus. And in my heart of hearts, I wanted to tweet, where are my Black legislators at? Right? Like you come out with this big champion showing off in the testimony and the hearings And when it comes down to your vote and where the money goes, which is where y'all teach us to look at the money and the vote, we see what it is. Mm -hmm. And national news right now in federal court, Google is being sued for being a monopoly. Google says that there's always been consumer choice over search engines. In Kentucky, a judge orders that the jurors of the Breonna Taylor case can speak out publicly and answer questions. And finally, shocker, the vaccine that is coming out of the administration's office is a vaccine for profit for one of Trump's boys. That is no shocker to me. Sounds like racial capitalism. Biden is set to appoint Republicans in his cabinet if he is elected. The Corona Task Force has said that they ain't seen the president in a long time and the information he's getting is straight from his vice president. And finally, Floridians are already facing voter suppression. Now, Clea, I know you've got some comrades down in Florida. Yeah, the folks down in the Florida Student Power Network were telling us just the other day that there's Proud Boys. They've been intimidating voters through emails, through all types of other tactics to tell them to vote for Trump, which is terrifying. Terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. And Chelsea, of course, you know, we have a bit of international news this week. Mm -hmm. In Nigeria, there has been an indefinite 24-hour curfew imposed on Lagos, which is the commercial hub of the country. Martial law sounds a lot like what happens here when things break out, but for 24 hours. Protesters have been shot in Lagos because of the backfire and more of these curfews that have been imposed. So not just the police violence, the curfews, but people are losing their lives now. That's ridiculous. They're unsure how many lives are lost. This is breaking news that's happening on a Tuesday night. Things may have changed by the time this airs Wednesday. That's frightening. So Chelsea, out of Bolivia this week, the former Bolivian president, Evo Morales, his political party, the Movement for Socialism, has claimed a victory, a huge victory. Like, I'm talking the first real stab at neoliberalism victory. Okay. This socialist party has claimed victory in the presidential election in Bolivia. And so his successor secured over 50% of the vote. This is a big deal because not only is it a socialist victory, but the U.S. successfully helped right-wing folks in Bolivia stage a coup. And that took out the socialist party and put in a right-wing Janine Añez, who helped with the mass massacre of indigenous people and leaders in their country. And now these elections, which have been postponed two times, there's Mm -hmm. been a general strike in the country, lots of protests, and now we have this huge vote. It's a huge win for the indigenous communities in Bolivia and frankly, all around the world. Well, those are the types of wins that we need to hear about and that we need to model after because they are possible when we come together and collectively organize for our future. And that's really what this episode is about, Kalia. 
And it's about organizing through the divide, looking back in our history about how this damn monument keeps popping up. We're going to talk today a little bit about how the monument stopped the organizing and the progressive movement that was happening right after emancipation, after a historic build of the Richmond City Hall, this monument popped up. And then now in 2020 in October, just days before the election, what the national news is talking about with Richmond, Virginia, after months of protest is still this monument. This week on Race Capital, we have Dr. Peter Radcliffe and Bill Fletcher Jr. Stay tuned. So um, I'm Peter Radcliffe, uh, and I wrote a book uh, called Black Labor in Richmond, 1865 to 1890. Uh, The book grew out of my PhD dissertation, a project that I spent about a decade uh, from the mid-70s into the early 80s working on. Uh, as a graduate student at the University of Pittsburgh. Um, I was drawn to the subject. I am not from Richmond. Um, I was drawn to the subject largely because of my childhood and youth growing up in New London, Connecticut, um, a community uh, that was very influenced by the US Navy and manufacturing of submarine warships Um, And that work and the Navy brought uh, significant numbers of African-Americans and Puerto Ricans and Filipinos to New London. And so I was fortunate in the 1950s and 60s uh, to go to public schools in which uh, white students like me were a minority. And I learned a great deal. My first teachers uh, were my fellow students. Uh, who taught me about the struggles that they and their families were going through and led me to ask a lot of questions about why was inequality um, so driven by race and why was inequality so present uh, in the United States. Um, I went off to college in 1969, uh, asking questions influenced by the rise of the Black Panthers, um, the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Um, I was asking questions about um, whether the war in Vietnam was an accident and asking questions about uh, whether we had actually made progress on racism in the United States. Um, And I like to say that I answered those questions in my first semester at college. And that led me to then ask for the next three and a half years and really for the rest of my life. Um, Given the answers to those questions, what was I going to do about it? And really quickly, what year was it? Sure. So it was the fall of 1969 and the winter and spring of 1970. Um, It was the year of uh, the murder of students at Jackson State in Mississippi and the murder of students uh, by the National Guard at Kent State University in Ohio. Um, It was also the year... Uh, of the Black Panther trials in New Haven, Connecticut. And I was a very, very fortunate uh, young man that I had a teacher at Amherst College uh, named Jan Bizard, who fortunately is still alive and someone I stay in touch with, such important mentor to me, that Jan had been an advisor to the defense team for Huey P. Newton in Oakland. Um, He brought those experiences into the classroom at Amherst College and that he drove a carload of students from Western Massachusetts to New Haven 
to participate in the protests during the trial of the Black Panthers. Um, and every time in the rest of my life when I drove a carload of young people to a protest somewhere, I thought about Jan and his having driven me as a student. And so I think I became a dedicated mentor because I was shaped by dedicated mentors. And they really modeled for me um, that we have to, white people have to take responsibility uh, for the racism and inequality that we see in our society. Um, and because of the privileges and access to skills and resources that I had, I became an academic. I became a teacher, I became a scholar and a researcher, and I turned those skills to use in trying to understand the historical development, not only of racism, but also of the struggles against racism. And it's so important that we not lose the memory, lose track of those struggles in the past, um, because there's a hell of a fight. There was a fight in history and then there is a fight about history. And if we cannot imagine that people fought back in the past, how can we imagine how we can fight back in the present? There was a fight in history and there's also a fight about history. That seems yeah. really, really deeply here in the fallen capital of the Confederacy. Sure. Richmond was more than the capital of the Confederacy that Richmond was the center of industrial slavery in the South. Thousands of enslaved men and women worked in Richmond factories, created wealth for slave owners and factory owners, but also created space and power and institutions, despite being enslaved, that they created space within which they could love each other, they could organize together, they could try to make their lives better, and they could keep an idea of freedom alive that would blossom during the Civil War when Richmond became not only the capital of the Confederacy, but a center of the Underground Railroad, um, a place of resistance. And, and that in the aftermath of emancipation, that those enslaved people and the formerly free African-Americans who had lived and worked in Richmond would together create a series of social movements, or as some of us would say today, a freedom movement that took different shapes at different times um, and carried those experiences and those relationships forward with them. So what got you interested in Richmond specifically? So, um, there's the practicality of being a graduate student, and I had a teaching assistantship, and it was made clear to me um, that if I did not complete a master's thesis within three semesters, I would lose my funding. Um, so I needed to have a project. Um, I was making an intellectual transition from having been a sociology undergraduate student to being a history graduate student. So I didn't know a hell of a lot about history. Um, and in the, the seminar for labor history students at the University of Pittsburgh uh, in the fall of 1974, my second great mentor, David Montgomery, uh, who taught at Pitt, um, David introduced me to a book uh, called Industrial Slavery in the Old South, 
uh, by a young white scholar named Robert Starobin. And in Starobin's book, uh, he spends a lot of time talking about Richmond, about the tobacco factories, the iron factories, the nail factories, the flour mills, um, and the presence of enslaved and free African-Americans working in those factories. And so I had brought a primary interest in race and in the intersections of race and class, understanding how those dynamics worked uh, together. And so when I read that book and then discovered that no one had really written about Richmond after 1865, um, that I decided I would zero in on Richmond, try to understand what happened uh, when slavery ended. Um, did African-Americans keep those jobs? Did they organize unions? Uh, what kinds of relationships did they have with white workers uh, in those factories? Um, did they organize unions together? So those were the questions that brought me to look at it. Were there any numbers that stood out to you that really said, I have to learn more about Richmond labor? Well, um, when I learned about the social institutions that enslaved people had helped to create, uh, the first African Baptist church in the early 1840s, um, mutual aid societies, burial societies, the ways that people work together to care for each other, to have each other's backs. The, the concept that I'm sure is bubbling up in Richmond in the last six months, the concept of mutual aid and the discovery also within working class life in the United States of cooperation of the ways that people care for each other rather than compete with each other. I was very interested in that fabric. And I was, I, I discovered one of the great things that I came across were the records of the Freedmen Savings Bank in Richmond. 7,000 African-Americans opened accounts at the Freedmen Savings Bank. No one, and, and the, the ideology of the Freedmen Savings Bank was a, a benign white patriarchy was going to create an institution to teach freedmen and freedwomen the value of thrift. Well, I discovered that during slavery, there were free African-Americans who married enslaved African-Americans and spent years earning and saving the money to buy their lovers freedom. That there were enslaved African-Americans who saved the money to buy their own freedom. And so no white people needed to teach them. And I found that the black community in Richmond in the years after the Civil War practiced a kind of fictive kinship there were created families that were intergenerational, ways that they took whatever resources they had and used them for the collective betterment of the community. And so unions and political organizations were extensions of this kind of mutuality and cooperation 
So when people hear that an enslaved person could save money to buy their own freedom, Mm -hmm. could you actually break down what that would look like? Many folks would say they don't earn money. They're just working. What what does that look like? Starobin, in his book, Industrial Slavery in the Old South, points out that when it came to factory work, that enslaved people essentially negotiated that piecework bonuses, they would negotiate to earn a bonus if they exceeded the quotas that were sought. So the management in those factories learned that you had to use money as a way to motivate labor from enslaved people because the collective experience of labor, and we know that this went on in tobacco fields and cotton, pe- cotton fields. If, if, if you read the great relatively new book by Edward Baptist, The Half Has Never Been Told, which is about what happens in the cotton fields um, between 1800 and 1860, that there is resistance. One of the great issues in the fields was who was going to be the song leader because the enslaved workers wanted a song leader who would set a pace that even the oldest and the youngest could keep up with. The overseer wanted a song leader who would set a pace that would make make workers work faster. Understanding class, there is always a struggle over the work itself, became a source of income and savings for enslaved people. Their owners were often on remote plantations outside of the city. And they were, in many cases, allowed to negotiate their own hiring arrangement. And because labor was so valuable to the iron mill and the tobacco factory and the flour mill, and those workers learned individually and also listened to each other how to negotiate, how to play the employers off against each other. And so that was embedded in in the Black community. Prior to emancipation. Prior to emancipation. In the spring of 1886, a labor organization that unless you were a labor historian, you hadn't heard of, Uh, They called itself the Noble and Holy Order of the Knights of Labor, which was all over the United States in the 1880s, that the Noble and Holy Order of the Knights of Labor had been organizing in Richmond, had been organizing African-American workers as well as white workers. And in the spring of 1886, the Richmond City Council announced that it was time to build a new city hall that the former city hall had been burned down uh, when Jefferson Davis and the Confederates scurried out of town in April of 1865. Given the ideology of the so-called New South, it was an embarrassment that the former capital of the Confederacy did not have an impressive city hall. And so finally they decided they were gonna build one. And the Knights of Labor organized and presented a petition 
signed by about 9,000 people to the city council saying, we too would like to see a new city hall built, but we have conditions. We would like it to be built out of local materials. We would like it to be built by local labor. We would like it to be built on the eight hour day. We would like it to be built providing a living wage to workers. And the fifth condition, we would like in the language of the day, colored workers to have access to skilled jobs on this project along with white workers. And when they presented that petition to the city council, the city council responded with a discourse that I think we would be very familiar with today. They said, we would be fiscally irresponsible. We need to build a city hall as cheaply as possible. We wanna put it out to bid and let contractors from all over the country make offers and we'll take the lowest bid. And the Knights of Labor's local leaders one, William Mullen, a white guy from the printing trades and the editor of a labor newspaper, the Richmond Labor Herald, and the other, Joseph Brown Johnson, an African-American barber, that the two of them came to the city council and said, if that's your decision, we're gonna organize an independent political party that we're gonna call the Working Men's Reform Party, and we're gonna run for your seats. And lo and behold, in May of 1886, they succeeded and swept to control of the city council. They built the city hall, meeting all five of the conditions, and they built a beautiful building, which as I'm fond of saying, does not have a plaque on it that tells the story of how this building came to be built. We met, we connected, Chelsea, you and I, um, because I wrote an article about how the Robert E. Lee monument, the 50 foot tall monstrosity, how that was constructed in order to pull apart the white workers who had been part of the Workingmen's Reform Party and the Knights of Labor and the African-American workers who had been part of it. It was part of a campaign to drive them apart. And let me jump in and say that I want to give a shout out to Donald Miner that a lot of us do know. Um, he is a longtime labor organizer that is supportive of many of us in this movement and supports a lot of young folks and he would be considered an elder. And so it is this intergenerational moment that we are all experiencing right now on this radio show podcast to be able to connect this moment in history through our elders in this community. So I just also wanted to give a shout out to Donald and all his work right here in the sixth district. Uh, we're district buddies. As Donald and I are connected through his presence in the labor movement and his involvement with United Food and Commercial Workers Union. So it, it's so great that these connections get made. But here we are in October and the monument still stands. We still do not have a decision on this monument. And to even talk about the process of the city hall of how it was built with care, it's also important to now talk about how this particular monument was put up as we work so hard to bring it down. Right. I, I also want to add, Chelsea, that, and, and I often am, am unsure whether to use the word ironic or the word appropriate, but when I wrote my article 
about the statue, I sent it to the Richmond Times-Dispatch. They never even replied. I sent it to the Washington Post. They never even replied. And so I write an article about the suppression of history and my article. So finally, Yohuru Williams, who has written a great book on the Black Panthers, a great book on the history of the civil rights movement. Yohuru is at the University of St. Thomas here in St. Paul. Yohuru hooked me up with the Progressive magazine and they published it in a hot minute. As somebody that was heavily inquired upon from media throughout the summer, everyone outside of Richmond only wants to talk about these monuments. So it's uh-huh. really interesting that you tell me that it's it's also a certain part of the monument they wanted to talk about, which was the current day and what would happen in the future, not necessarily the past of how we got here. Right, is- or that this is a Confederate monument and that white people in the South are hopeless. And so of course, white people in the South put up a Confederate monument years after Robert E. Lee died. You know, they just can't help themselves. Right. And, and in fact, you know, and I know, and part of what I'm trying to draw a historical thread to is that there have always been race traitors among white people. And, it's, and, and if we do not breathe on those embers, we are not going to build movements that can be powerful enough to change the world in which we live. Thank you for saying the word race traitor. But it's important for white people to see role models in the past. Um, and the Richmond story is also a story of ultimate failure. And it's important for us to understand why, though the movement could win that election in 1886 and build that city hall the way they had wanted to build it, that there were ways that people within that movement were still vulnerable to the lures of racial privilege and advantage, that they were vulnerable to whispers in the ear about not trusting each other, and that they had not built at a grassroots level, a thick enough network of personal and interpersonal relationships that when they heard something disturbing, if a white person heard something disturbing about a black person, they didn't have somebody to go to, to to find out about that. And conversely, when black people heard something disturbing about white people. And in that lack of interpersonal trust, they got pulled apart and building that statue was a central part of of establishing that mistrust and and divided loyalty that would define for the most part, the next half century. So break down how how they divided that. What What did that look like strategy wise as a historian? So because it was a third party movement, the leaders of both of the other main parties had an interest in destroying it. They were more devoted to maintaining a social class in power than they were into whether Democrats or Republicans were were running the show. They could not have workers and workers organized interracially. They could not have that as an example. 
I stumbled across a minute book, the minutes of meetings that the Knights of Labor Cooperative Building Society had had in 1886 and 1887, the same time that this election was taking place. And the way the Cooperative Building Society worked is people paid dues. And every time the treasury reached $100, the organization had a lottery and somebody got $100, which was enough money to buy a building lot in the city. African-Americans as well as whites belong to the Cooperative Building Society. Some people said, well, what if most of the dues payers are white? And when they pull a name out of the hat, it's a black guy who gets it. And what if he decides to buy a lot in a neighborhood that's been all white? And the Knights of Labor in their cooperative building society said, we're all brothers in this organization. We don't care. We're gonna have African-Americans as well as whites. They got an equal chance to win and they can choose to buy a lot wherever they want. So in the heart of the organization, that's pretty remarkable. And then there's all of this turbulence going on around that. Yeah, the Working Man Reforms Party was built and they are now moving off of this momentum after building this beautiful city hall. How does the monument get up, end up being built? Who builds it and who benefits? And what is that? So the like? big advocates are the, the daughters of the Confederacy, and they call on the state of Virginia to spend taxpayer money. That was part of the deal in 1890. They decide, unlike the city hall, which is built out of local materials by local workers, the statue was built in France and is imported to Richmond. Quite smart strategy. It comes in pieces. And so there's a whole elaborate process of lugging the pieces to the site, which had been a tobacco field worked by enslaved men and women, soon to become a suburb and, and a developed suburb. But, and it's lugged by rope up to this site and assembled and 10,000 people get ecstatic um, over the, the christening of, of this monstrosity. And, and, and again, it's about the fight about history. And the narrative is, well, white people always loved Robert E. Lee. Robert E. Lee was always a representative of the white race. In fact, if Richmond was a center of the Underground Railroad. It wasn't only Black folks. I want to mention, I have a friend, a great historian named Marcus Redeker. And, and Marcus writes a lot about sailors. And Marcus has written about what he calls the Maritime Underground Railroad. And the way that ships in Norfolk and Richmond were used to help enslaved people escape. And he says, who was on those ships? Most of the sailors were white. Why were they helping these enslaved people to escape? Because they had a sense of class. They had a sense of, of, of the kind of tyranny that they worked under on these ships. 
Marcus tells the story, and I'm sorry that I'm forgetting the name of the enslaved person, because Marcus makes it a real point to mention him, but, but this, this was someone who escaped in 1847 and had no legs. His legs had been amputated. And Marcus asks, how can someone be a runaway slave who has no legs? And he was stowed away on a ship and carried to New Bedford, where he then was free. And then in the late 1850s under the Fugitive Slave Law, he was arrested and returned to slavery. And I, I don't know if your listeners are familiar, Chelsea, with this wonderful new book about the woman, the enslaved woman, Oni Judge, who had been owned by George Washington, who escaped. Um, the book is called Never Caught. Um, and George Washington devoted decades to trying to capture her because it was a point of power that he had to show no one could escape from him, but only judge did. And the owner of this legless enslaved person had to recapture him because they had to prove that escape and resistance were impossible. But the study of history shows us they were possible and they were present. Please go ahead. So just for all you race capital listeners, we have actually had Dr. Erica Armstrong on the show. Uh, so visit. Uh, you. Yeah. <laughs> so please visit uh, Past History to learn uh, a little bit more about George Washington and Martha Washington, which was the point of us showing that about the relentlessness of capturing this um, enslaved woman by other white women, as well as we lift Martha Marsha Washington as another person on the Women's Monument that stands yeah. on the state capitol as well as Sally Louise Thompson, who was a doctor for the Confederate Army that we are also now building a monument to. And as a reminder, yes, Richmond, Virginia is building another Confederate monument to a oh, woman. Man. Isn't that oh, wonderful? Yeah. You're only yeah. going to find that information here yeah. on Race Capital. No one else is talking right. about it. Thank you so much for coming onto the show today. I already know that you will be a future guest again. I, I look forward to it. Yeah. Hey. And tell everybody again, the name of your book and how they can find it. Sure, so my, my book is called Black Labor in Richmond, 1865 to 1890. It was published in paperback by the University of Illinois Press. I urge you to patronize independent bookstores and, and resist the temptation to use Amazon. Thank you so much, Peter. Thank you. Thank and you, I look forward to lots more, Chelsea. All right, we'll catch you soon. You're tuned in to Race Capital on WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio, and you just heard an interview with Peter Radcliffe. Make sure you tune in to wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts to check the full interview with Peter. Stay tuned as we talk next to Bill Fletcher Jr. right here on Race Capital. Race Capital is excited to welcome Bill Fletcher Jr., who is an acclaimed labor organizer and a writer. He's the author of Solidarity Divided, 
The Crisis in Organized Labor and a New Path Toward Social Justice, and also author of They're Bankrupting Us and 20 Other Myths About Unions. We are so excited to welcome Bill Fletcher Jr. to the show. Well, I appreciate being on uh, and being invited. Uh, the um, I think uh, Virginia is a very exciting state because of the uh, transformation that's underway. And uh, it's years of organizing that's taken place at multiple levels and increasingly electoral organization that's transforming the state. And I, I think that that's very exciting. I mean, we're at a moment, we're at a very dangerous moment. And uh, I think that what many people misunderstand is that Donald Trump is actually not on the ballot. Uh, a right-wing populist movement within which there's a significant neo-fascist constituency is on the ballot. And so if people are looking at it simply as a personality thing of Trump versus Biden, they're misunderstanding the moment that we're in. Um, we're, we're looking at, um, we have been fighting in many ways a defensive battle since the early 1970s with constant pushbacks, erosion of our rights, um, and I think what's important about this moment are the possibilities. Uh, the, the mass upsurge that took place in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder um, was and is historic. This movement has to institutionalize its existence. One of the mistakes of my generation was believing that upsurges are permanent and they're not. Upsurges decline. They're either routed or they decline on their own. And if you don't leave in its place organization on the ground, you'll be swept away. And I think that that was a tremendous mistake and I'm hoping that current activists in reviewing history get that mm -hmm. and, and see the critical importance of organization, of uh, winning political power, things like that. Given the divide seen right here in Richmond organizing between electoral politics and grassroots organizing, I asked Bill Fletcher Jr. about this divide on the left. Although electoral work and non-electoral organizing are complementary. It is frequently the case that people that are engaged in one uh, believe that the other is in contradiction. And that's a mistake. That's a mistake that's very um, uh, prevalent on the left. On the right, it's actually not. What's really interesting about the right wing is that they're far more flexible in understanding the way that electoral, non-electoral, legislative, litigation, all of that stuff is necessary in terms of building a movement. With us, you know, it's, we're, we're purists. Mm -hmm. Most of the left is purist. And that's why we're getting our rear ends kicked. Because instead of understanding that we need to be walking with two legs and that we've gotta be operating on multiple levels, 
we think it is only one way or the other. And that is a strategic mistake. Really, at this point, we should know better Mm. that we need to engage both. Bill Fletcher Jr. then uses a little bit of the current labor organizing culture to describe a little bit of the struggle that we're seeing even right here in Richmond, Virginia. Organized labor is a movement in crisis and has been in crisis. It is, it, it's a movement that has faced what I've been arguing for years is a, a sort of strategic paralysis um, that, the, that what is needed from organized labor ends up being something that challenges the paradigm within which organized labor has operated for years. And so this is something that a number of us have been chipping away at for years to to basically argue that organized labor needs to be truly a social justice movement and not just a movement for wages, hours, and working conditions. There's many people from organized labor that are very myopic And you may be going to them because they're logical allies for various campaigns, and then they don't get it. That is, organized labor doesn't get it. And that's one of the big challenges that we face right now. It's been 100 years since the 19th Amendment was passed. Prior to being passed, there was an organizing struggle and divide where black women were left behind by white suffragettes and black men, both seeking the right to vote. So I asked Bill Fletcher Jr. about that context and how it applies to the divides of today. Let me start with the 15th Amendment, then jump to the, to the present. Um, the battle over the 15th Amendment that led to the split that you mentioned really came down to whether or not the conditions existed in the 1860s to win the total victory. And whether or not the right to vote for black men at that point, since men were the ones that were voting, was nevertheless going to be a significant victory. And and I think what this comes down to is not looking at this question in abstract, but looking at the concrete in terms of what was going on at that moment in US history. Um, And This is why Frederick Douglass appealed to white suffragettes uh, to support the 15th Amendment. But coming up to the present, what has been true in a large part of the 20th century that started to break down was throughout many, if not most social movements, progressive social movements, issue of male supremacy or patriarchy was something that was that women were repeatedly told to put on the back burner. Um, And this was certainly the case in the Black Freedom Movement in the 60s. Um, the, The movement was energized by Black women 
but the leadership was overwhelmingly that of men. And the issues of male supremacy were, um, were backburning until there were revolts, uh, the reverberations which we continue to feel, whether it was the role of people like Fannie Lou Hamer, or it was the articulation by the Kambahi River Collective, or the Third World Women's Alliance. So we started to see, see this whole thing uh, changing dramatically. The movement that we're up against right now, right-wing populism, the main face of that is white racism. But there's another face to it that is equally important, and that is the face of misogynism. The, I think the best way to describe it is that for right-wing populist movements, they tend to have mythical periods that they worship. I like to call it, uh, say, that they see the future in the past. And for the right-wing populace, the 1950s is a critical period. And it's a critical period for a variety of reasons, including the increasing living standard of the average working person. But as far as they're concerned, Men were men, women were girls, black people knew their place, Latinos only existed to sell tacos, right? And Asians just sold Chinese food. So there was this sort of everyone knew their place. The, uh, the right-wing populist movement that has emerged over, uh, particularly since the 1970s, has made the attack on women, principally but not exclusively, through the anti-abortion movement, um, central to their vision. It's essentially trying to reaffirm the traditional patriarchal roles. <clears throat> now, where it gets interesting and complicated and very sad is when you see that the right-wing populist movement is not just men, that significant numbers of white women will actively embrace patriarchy in the name of fighting for the white republic. And, um, and this is why our movement um, can't be simply an anti-racist movement, but really is a movement against oppression. And, and so while we wanna clearly identify the centrality of racism in the current moment. We can't repeat the mistakes of the past of shoving these other issues under the table and to the back burner or whatever metaphor you'd like to use. And I, I think about this a lot because I study right-wing movements and I am amazed at how these right-wing movements will frequently have women who are leading them, uh, Le Pen in France, for example, yet they're articulating a message that is fundamentally patriarchal. And they, they seem to see no inconsistency there. And they actually have a mass following. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In full race capital fashion, we couldn't let Bill Fletcher Jr. get off the line without asking him, 
What's his privilege and how does he use it to disrupt the myth of white supremacy? And in pure Bill Fletcher Jr. fashion, he turned my question upside down. Mm. Well, I'm going to answer that question in a different way Please. than you might be expecting. Um, in the society, there is uh, white racial privilege, and there's male privilege. And I use the term privilege in a very specific way in, um, in, in order to emphasize that there is a system it's not simply about what Bill Fletcher is thinking. There is a system of privilege and what a privilege is, which is really a source of a lot of confusion out there. Privilege is synonymous with a differential in treatment. That white privilege is a differential in treatment that exists between the people who have been identified as white and others. Male privilege is a differential in treatment between those identified as men and others. It's not just something I make up in my head. Mm -hmm. um, and so the question is, what do I do about that privilege, that system of privilege? So what I, I'll tell you what I don't do. I don't go into meetings and yell, I'm a man and I've got all this privilege. Because I have found that most regular people don't give a damn about that. What they want to know is what am I actually doing to fight male supremacy, mm -hmm. right? What am I doing to fight patriarchy? And if I'm just talking a lot, but I'm not doing anything, then it's worthless. And, I, and my attitude is the same towards white people. I don't need a white person coming into a meeting that started a meeting, and I see this all the time. I'm a white person. I want to acknowledge my privilege. I don't give a damn about that. I want to know to what extent are you like John Brown or Ann Braden? That's all I want to know, right? Right. So now having said that, um, so I look at my job as among other things, joining with others to fight male privilege, mm -hmm. to fight various forms of discrimination, male supremacy, harassment, et cetera, that are targeted at women and targeted at non-gender binary groups, right? So that's the way I look at it. So it's not, that I utilize my privilege, it's more than I'm fighting against a system of privilege. Mm. Bill Fletcher Jr., how can people follow you and keep up with your work? So my website is billfletcherjr.com and junior is JR. I'm also all over Facebook and, and Twitter. I'm the executive editor of a, a web magazine called globalafricanworker.com. And that's all one word, globalafricanworker.com. And what I want to say, in addition to thanking you uh, for the honor of, of doing this uh, program with you, is that people that are listening to this program need to keep in mind that we're in a marathon race. We're not in a sprint. Uh, one of the biggest mistakes for activists is to think that this is a quick run and to judge our success based on one victory or one defeat at a time. We've got to be looking down the road. And this is really hard. Um, but if you don't, you'll burn out. If you don't, you'll become cynical. 
a follow-up question to that. Not measuring by our wins, like political wins that way, are there ways to have a healthy measure of our wins? Yeah, so I'd say several things. One is our wins. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, another is the organizations that we build and sustain. Mm-hmm. Um, the extent to which we root ourselves successfully among grassroots people, working class people, um, as opposed to just talking to ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, our ability to influence so-called common sense, to borrow from Antonio Gramsci. The, the, in other words, the, our ability to influence what people take for granted. Right. All, of, all of those things I just mentioned together, not separately, help us to see whether we're winning or whether we're losing. It's always the question of a tendency in one direction or the other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And hearing that, I will say as an activist working right here in Richmond for a long time that that by those measurements, I think that we are winning. We are having growing organizations. And I know many activists are now having a chance to spread their work and amplify their work that really reach more people. Then that's the important part. And, you know, really, I, I really appreciate that of what you say, because telling young folks that maybe are newer to this mobilization, politicalization, radicalization, and thinking Mm -hmm. and learning so much so fast, even the information we just heard um, earlier this episode about how the monument came to be and that there was a whole third political party. Um, Mm -hmm. This is coming so quickly. And even though the, the specific demands that were printed on our posters may not have been met by the politicians, there has been great progress made in the unity and the mutual aid and the support and care and truly just the connections that we now have with one another. Excellent. Thank you so much. All right. Keep the faith. And that concludes this week's episode of Race Capital. Thanks so much to our guests, Dr. Peter Radcliffe and Bill Fletcher Jr. Thanks as always to my co-host, Kalia Harris and Naomi Isaac. And thanks to you, Race Capital listeners. If you've enjoyed this episode, make sure you're subscribed wherever you listen to your podcast and consider joining our Patreon to support our sustainable work as we pump out weekly episodes, continue to interrogate the racial narratives from our place, space, and time right here in the fallen capital of the Confederacy, Richmond, Virginia. We'll catch you next week right here at 10 a.m. on WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio. I'm Chelsea Hicks Wise. Thanks for tuning in. In a vision of my mind, I remember when she said to me, Don't ever look behind She said look ahead And I would see Someone always loving me Her picture is painted in my memory Without a color of despair No matter 
Yeah. 